Welcome to Folkways, an auditory stroll through the rich and fascinating folklore of Britain and Ireland. The beliefs and culture of people who made this cluster of northerly islands their home. From music to psychogeography to what to do if you notice the devil following you to church. It's a long, strange trip and there are no guarantees you'll be home in time for dinner. Woohoo! The warmest of welcomes to the second season of Folkways, the folklore of Britain and Ireland. Last time we had a folk tale, it was the Lady of the Lake of Llyn of Anvar, one of Britain's most famous stories. To counter that, I'm now going to tell you one of its least. Get some good quality headphones, maybe a cup of tea, and enjoy part one of the strange and fascinating tale of the Bells of Mensmere. Mensmere Abbey was founded by Ranulf de Glanville in 1182. It wasn't intended to be a parish church, but rather a place of worship for a small group of religious men. Their order were Premonstratensians, a French order, calling themselves the White Canons. The canons were originally founded by Saint Norbert in Premontre, France, five years after a dream in which he saw white-clad figures walking in procession and carrying lights. Norbert instructed his followers to fear the company of men as a fish shuns dry land, and we know that new communities actively sought out the most remote, desolate locations in which to build their settlements. Perhaps this contributed, at least, to the decision to build the abbey within the marshland of Minsmere, Suffolk, a lonely place of bogs, dark forest, and the ever-crashing sea. At dusk especially, the abbey looked impressive to onlookers. On still nights, its windows could be seen flickering with the fires and many candles across the marsh. But this mysterious grandeur came at a price. The entire ground could quickly turn swamp-like, with coastal floodings more frequent than the cannons had seemingly counted on. And that was before the other problem. The abbey lasted just under 200 years in this inhospitable location, before the monks fled, rebuilding further inland at Leyston. Whilst it is generally thought to be flooding that led to the relocation, there are the fragments of oral stories surrounding the Minsmere Chapel that say that, in addition to the floods, there was another reason the monks, then the people of the village, left. You're listening to The Bells of Minsmere, Part 1. Alice Mauser stood looking out to sea on the eve of her 25th birthday. She'd finished her day's work gutting the fish her father had brought back that morning, her blade slipping through the last one before hanging up her apron and heading to the beach. She waded through the sand dunes further inland to the shingle at the water's edge. Placing her hands above her head, she touched the tips of her fingers together in an arch and breathed deeply, keen to rid her nose of the smell of the day's work. She listened to the waves of the North Sea gently breaking near her feet. Twenty-five. She found herself, she realised, unexpectedly, looking forward to the future. 
The fishing business her whole family worked for seemed to be doing ever better, and she had been, gradually, shaking off the low confidence of her youth, every year finding herself walking slightly more upright than the one before. Whilst Minsmere Port didn't bustle like its famous neighbour Dunwich, opportunities still felt as regular as the ships that headed daily in and out of the village. People began to talk that they, too, might have Dunwich's fine fate if they all pulled hard together. Importantly, it felt possible. Optimism, as well as salt, was in the air. Alice sometimes made wishes as she watched the boats leave, fishing, carrier, trade cargoes, taking her prayers away from her and delivering them way out into the world. If she were honest, there was only one thing she wished for these days. As she looked out across the ocean, she saw a fine mist rolling in across the waves, blurring the horizon. She let her eyes slip out of focus as she gazed at it, happily lost for a moment before voices from the village roused her and, glancing at the abbey across the marsh, she headed home. That night, the mist from the ocean continued rolling in, a thick carpet that started heading for the village. Tendrils seeped into cracks under doors, down chimneys and then across rooms where sleeping bodies lay, the odd nose twitching before sinking back into sleep. In the weeks that followed, the villagers had become accustomed to the permanent haze in which they now seemed to live. On the first day, they'd woken to find a fine mist which seemed to be clinging to the edges of the village, but each day it seemed slightly denser, you having to move that bit closer to a person to see their face fully. Still, these hardy coastal folk had experienced things stranger than this, and for a short while, things continued as normal. One Sunday, Alice, her parents and cousin Elizabeth were making their way back from their parish church in Theberton. Despite being the nearest, it was still over an hour's walk away. Now with aching feet, they walked back into Minsmere village, past the small collection of houses. They heard voices ahead and, moving closer, saw the elderly villager Roger sitting on a chair in the lane, flanked by two of the cannons, their spotless white habits at odds with Roger's muted, patched clothes. Strange weather we're having. He flicked his cane at the four of them in greeting, then swirled it around in the mist that had subsided since this morning, but still clung to their ankles. Despite being discouraged from socialising with the villagers, a part of the canon's work did include charity to the needy, and they could often be found in twos and threes walking into the village to dispense their services. These services had increasingly begun to focus on Roger, who had had multiple serious fishing accidents, but, despite nobody being sure how, was still very much alive. Him needing help to walk these days, he often instructed the religious men in a gruff tone to help him from his armchair and place his stiff body outside on the lane where he could talk to people as they came by. Outside Roger's house had become a bit of a hot spot over the past year, with neighbours gathering, bringing their own chairs in the evening, as they talked and sometimes drank 
well into the night. This afternoon, two of the cannons were seated on either side of Roger, seeming to be keeping him company in the late summer sun as the Mauser family approached. Seeing the three figures, Alice tried to busy herself looking back down the lane, then diligently inspecting her own fingernails with a newly found grace, before slowly looking up and instantly meeting his eyes, Thomas. He was a canon around her age, them both having essentially spent the last ten years in the same small place, yet having quite different experiences of it. He looked back at her, without talking, for what may have been two, three seconds, but felt like many times more. Alice looked away, her face beginning to heat as she tried to casually start heading off in the direction of their home, her family reluctantly beginning to follow. How she wished the mist had been high enough to cover her then. She often saw Thomas around the village. She never knew when it would be, different monks arriving on different days. She amused herself with the idea of a monk rota, or perhaps a lottery with names being drawn to laughs and protests. There would often be long stretches of time in between, and then she'd see him again, and that time would fold, dissolve. There was nothing to speak of as such, nothing to report, and that was the way she guessed they both knew it would stay. Still, the intensity of it bothered Alice. She'd never experienced the alarming intimacy like when her and Thomas's eyes met. There was no comparison, no place to put it, to file away and be done with it, and so it hung awkwardly, without outlet, without resolution. She'd found ways to cope. The restless feeling it instilled within her often drove her to the beach at night. She was pleased for the fresh air, for the wind that whipped her hair and watered her eyes as she gulped for breath. Picking nights when the moon was out, she'd walk up the beach for half an hour or so before turning back towards the village. On really bad nights, she'd walk for hours, the strains of music from neighbours' gatherings drifting across the sand and out to sea. On more than a few occasions, she'd seen a figure on the beach. They were some way off, always stood stationary around where the chapel was, in the opposite direction from the village. Once, during last year's especially bright harvest moon, she'd seen they were dressed entirely in white, a cannon. She couldn't see any more than that. What were they doing, stood out there all alone, away from their brothers and their many prayers? Alice had seen the figure several times since, at least she thought it was the same individual, always standing still on the beach and just staring out, east, across the dark water. One night at the end of August, a large gathering assembled outside elderly Roger's house. Chairs were placed in a circle, with the sound of singing and laughing being carried far away across the marsh. Tonight, Roger led the group with sea shanties from his youth, all at once possessing the vigour of a 20-year-old as he swung his elbows in the air, scolding people who missung the words. As midnight began to approach, the mist started building again, lashings of it rolling in 
off the North Sea. At odd moments, singing faces became submerged by it to then appear once more. As a sheet of cloud slipped away, for a moment revealing a cluster of stars, John Mouse's temperature began to rise, Alice's father. He bent his head over his feet, an ache beginning to grow at his temples and a nauseous feeling sweeping through him. He must have drunk too much, he thought, lifting his head to try to squint at the other villagers on the opposite side of the circle, wiping a sheet of sweat from his brow. The sea shanties beginning to unsettle him, he staggered up, making his way back home with Mary, his wife, assuring her that everything's fine, even if he wasn't convinced himself. This moment in late August, with a happy circle of locals and a beach strewn with sleeping seals, marked the beginning of the end of the village. Out of the 26 villagers, three were now bedbound, one of those still being John Mauser. All three had initially reported the same symptoms, a headache that pulsed at the temples, followed by that wave of nausea. Each had gone up to sleep, only to find when they closed their eyes that their beds felt like they were moving beneath them, drifting across the room as their stomachs lurched. They traversed strange, feverish landscapes in their dreams, floating directly above the ocean as they sucked in the mist through their mouths. Upon waking, they wondered if they'd had an accident, so soaked in sweat were their sheets. Their already high temperatures continued to rise. A doctor was called from Thabiton, and they continued to rise. The mist had now progressed into a thick fog at all times. It had become too treacherous for boats to come into Minsmere port, them now sailing into Dunwich, which, curiously went the gossip, was unaffected by the fog to this degree, and where, now, new deals with the incoming vessels were being struck. For Minsmere, a village dependent on fishing, the perpetual fog had an especial significance. To start with, the village fishing boats had tried to sail as normal, with mixed results. But as the mist thickened, the journeys became near impossible. A few people still fished from the shore, but naturally with a far poorer yield. The fish the villagers sold to the markets of Thebiton and many of the surrounding villages further inland drastically shrunk. Roger's nephew, Richard, an experienced fisherman, grew tired of waiting for the fog to clear. He was used to sailing in every inhospitable condition imaginable, and he was now running low on money. Despite protests from his wife, he left one morning in late September before she awoke, taking their dog, Ben, with him. Those who were awake had heard the dog whining from the beach, but Richard and his friend Ben never returned, and after this, no more boats left Minsmere Port for some time. Troubled by Richard's disappearance, three young fishermen decided to leave the village. They thought they'd try their luck in Dunwich for a bit, hoping to find odd jobs and lodgings where they could. They knew there would be something. Their families agreed. It seemed to make the most sense. From the beach, Alice watched them go, traipsing along the sand as they headed to the cliffs. 
before disappearing into that blanket of grey. Would they even make it? She experienced an odd feeling in her stomach as she looked at the place they'd just been, somewhere between sadness for them that they'd had to leave, mixed with a rippling sense of jealousy. With the lost fishing boat and now the departed lads, the village of 26 had become 22. It wasn't long before nine of those who remained had now also succumbed to the mystery illness. Autumn was in full throw, the dense woods at the back of the marsh a blaze of reds and bronze. Not that the villagers knew much about that. The fog would occasionally clear for a few moments, branches poking out like giant shadowy figures moving towards the sea. Alice lived in a cottage next to her parents at the bottom of the lane. She shared the small space with her cousin Elizabeth, who'd been orphaned on the eve of her fifth birthday. Elizabeth full well knew the danger of the ocean, yet it had taken on an unfriendly, almost menacing significance since the fog had swept in. Certain pictures in her head were becoming more defined. She guessed they were memories. One afternoon, when gathering samphire with her cousin Alice, Elizabeth had suddenly seen her mother's hands. She saw the angles of the thumbs and felt the warm palms against her cheeks. It was as real as the present moment. She stopped what she was doing, the strangest of feelings pooling in her chest as she gripped a samphire stalk in her hand. She'd always maintained she didn't remember much of her parents at all, and so this sudden, vivid image of parental love quite floored the 24-year-old. She leapt up, knocking the lantern they'd brought out, despite it only being the afternoon, clean over. Sorry, Elizabeth said in a small voice, chucking the remaining samphire into the basket before wading away. Where are you going? There didn't come a reply. Where are you going? But Elizabeth kept walking, leaving Alice alone on the marsh. After struggling on for a while without the light, Alice gave in to the fog and called it a day, using a large piece of driftwood as a landmark as she began moving in the rough direction of home. Her stomach rumbled. It had been some time since she'd made a journey to one of the markets, dreading the increasing difficulty of the routes. The past couple of days she'd opted instead for being creative with the meals. It was okay for now but not much beyond tomorrow. Both of her parents now lay permanently in bed, their milky white faces at odds with the heat that seemed to radiate from them. What with them and Elizabeth's increasingly erratic behaviour, it had fallen on Alice to do most of the jobs. She thought again about the long journey to the markets. As a seagull cried, she felt a glimmer of panic, it occurring to her, just how cut off this small community in the marshes really was. As she pondered her next move, something bright caught her eye. It looked like there were blobs of yellow coming in from the sea. She couldn't make them out from here and so moved towards the shoreline. She took a sharp intake of breath. 
there were a string of golden lights bobbing in a procession next to the water's edge. Alice stared, transfixed by the way they hovered, the way they moved as one in this near-perfect line. With a hand to her chest, she walked slightly closer, mesmerised by these pools of gold in a world that had turned grey. She moved again, closer, before freezing and then taking a step back. A pristine white sleeve had emerged, holding one of the lights. Alice then saw the rest of the white body and a sweet burning smell filled her nostrils. The golden lights were not bobbing of their own accord, but were each being held by a white cannon, walking equidistance from one another, slowly along the beach. She'd seen the cannons on the move many times before, but had never seen them walking like this. There was a solemnity and a perfectly paced unison that put Alice on edge. It felt like a funeral march with no body. They were walking from the direction of the village front, from the port. What had they been doing there? They continued their slow procession past Alice Mauser, who stood unseen in the sand dunes nearby. She was now glad Elizabeth had knocked the lamp over, allowing her near invisibility. Remaining as still as she could, she tried to make out the different figures. She spotted the tall form of Hugh from one lantern raised slightly higher, but beyond this, it was near impossible. The woody, burning smell hit her nose again, and she just about saw the final figure swinging something that was releasing fragrant smoke. It caught the back of her throat, and she put her hands over her mouth to stop from coughing, the strange procession with their golden lights disappearing back into the fog. Alice arrived home to find something at her door. She crouched down, her legs twinging with pain from the hours collecting plants. There was a wooden crate filled to the top with food, and on the side of which was scrawled the word, Mauser. She opened the cottage door to find Elizabeth seated on the table by the window, hugging her legs as she stared out into the grey. Everyone's got one, Elizabeth said in a slow voice. It took Alice a moment to realise she was talking about the food crate. Could you not have brought it in? Alice asked, not being able to keep the irritation from her voice. It a miracle it hadn't been pecked by the girls. But Elizabeth remained stationary, eyes unblinking with a slack jaw, as she continued looking out into the early evening. One of the strangest things was how aware everyone had become of their own bodies. Nobody knew what the mystery illness was, or how it was spreading, though every other day there seemed to be a new theory. People met on the lane, pleased to see others. Pleased to see there was still life beyond their own feverish family members, who lay under roofs with temperatures so high, doctors said, it wasn't possible. Caring duties were divvied up amongst the remaining family members, people entering houses with trepidation, each day not sure what they would find behind that closed bedroom door. Elizabeth sometimes helped with the Mauser parents, and sometimes didn't, often found sitting on the same table in her white nightdress, 
always staring out of that window. It transpired that the food parcels had been from Theberton, which, like Dunwich, wasn't affected by the fog to this degree. Locals there had got together, deciding help was needed for their coastal neighbours, many of whose businesses had temporarily folded. The agreement was you just paid for the goods whenever you were able to. After all, everybody knew who you were. As the Mauser cousins sat down for the best dinner they'd had in a while, the charity weighed heavily on Alice. She feared, with her family's current non-existent income, that they would never be able to pay the money back. Alice spent what was left of the year taking care of her family. Her mother got better, her father didn't, and in early November, they buried him. It was a double ceremony, with Richard the fisherman's widow Hilda, not an uncommon practice now for the village. Three had been buried at once the week before. After John and Hilda's funeral, a gathering on the beach was held at night. Lanterns were gripped in cold hands and strong mead was supplied by elderly Roger, this one of his first outings since the illness had been reported. Faces studied each other in the lamplight, it a comfort to see the familiar curves of cheeks and eyes with their lantern fire reflected back in them. The villagers headed back to Roger's house and after standing awkwardly at the door, decided, unexpectedly, to all pour in. For the first time, they seemed to forget their proximity to another, so starved of companionship that a combination of shock and relief was palpable on their faces. Some of the crowd were those who had recovered from the illness, and some, though they didn't know it, were those who didn't have much time left themselves. She didn't know why, but Alice had been unable to cry at her father's death. She sat with her back to the fireplace at Roger's, already having decided she'd only stay a short while. As she looked around, she had a strong suspicion that none of this was actually happening. Recently, she'd been waking at dawn each morning to fish from the shore. She wouldn't be able to carry on the business like this, but it was enough for her family. From then until she went to bed, she worked. There hadn't been much time to think about anything that had happened. Everyone seemed to be on automatic, filling their days just doing what they had to do. Alice didn't feel pained, but rather didn't feel much at all. A bit like she were made of paper. The past months should have been frightening, and yet each day started in the same simple way waking up and just performing each necessary task. Nobody ran down the lane screaming, nor fell to their knees in despair. No bodies had thrown themselves into the ocean. Despite the extraordinary circumstances, life was as normal as it had ever been. Elizabeth seemed physically fine, but like she were drifting into another universe. Alice's once enormous irritation at her had begun to subside recently. As she now watched her cousin's limp body standing awkwardly in the corridor, staring up at something in the rafters as only she could see, Alice half wondered if by checking out she didn't have the right idea. Alice downed her slightly warm mead and headed out the door. 
irritated that the gathering was growing raucous, with little or no mention of the two bodies that had just been buried. She couldn't hold it against them. She just couldn't stay. It wasn't long after this that the whispers started. Rumour had it that the canons had first spoken of it, yet since the religious men had now entirely retreated from the village, it wasn't clear who they'd whispered to. The rumour said that the mist was bringing in spirits who did not wish the villagers well, that were causing them illness. That the marsh was now completely infested with a type of evil, from the shore to the dark woods that lay to the back. Cries of the long dead were said to be heard in the early hours, waning only with the orange haze of the rising sun. One twilight evening, Alice looked out across the marsh to the woods, holding her lantern up as her unkempt chestnut hair blew in tendrils across her face. She wished she'd never heard this talk of a cursed land. She'd never thought about such nonsense before, but recently, although she batted it away in conversation, she had to admit odd new feelings were beginning to seep into the edges of her days. As she watched a nearby seal moving towards another and begin to attack it, she had the impression the land that had grown and nurtured her for so long now didn't want to do that anymore, like it didn't want her or anyone else to succeed. At what? She wasn't sure. Ridiculous, no doubt. In the coming weeks, she would tell others to snap out of it when they espoused such. All the while, feeling she had a piece of iron nailed through her heart. She still, despite everything, took her daily twilight strolls. It was the best part of her day, some time to herself that she looked forward to. Previously, morphing images of Thomas had never been far away in her mind's eye. However, recently, she tried to banish him. It hadn't been lost on the villagers that the cannons had now retreated. Whilst it was understandable the religious men would be concerned with their own health, they had, still, in the worst crisis the village had known for a long time, completely abandoned them. More help was sorely needed, one couple with no family regularly being left too long in their own mess until residents had a spare moment to see them next. The abbey, with its many servants of God permanently walled up against the outside disease, cut an increasingly unwelcome silhouette across the marsh. Alice was surprised at how personally she'd taken Thomas's withdrawal, but that didn't make any sense. They'd barely spoken a handful of words to each other over the years. Yet, whenever the fog cleared enough so a glimpse of the abbey in the dusk was seen, a sharp ache was felt between her ribs, the building's windows shining from the fires within. On this evening, after waving her lantern across the marsh with its fighting seals, a distinct feeling of unease creeping down her spine, she cut her stroll short and headed home. She walked briskly with a shallow breath, feeling all at once exposed and vulnerable. 
It was just village gossip. People making things up to explain what couldn't be. Spirits on the marsh. People had just been cooped up for too long. Arriving home, Alice heard Elizabeth moving around upstairs. She stoked the fire, then allowed her body to collapse into a nearby chair. She'd need to make some dinner soon, but gave herself a few minutes of motionlessness, her head back with her limbs hanging limply, feeling the tingle of the fire's heat moving up from her ankles. She felt her eyes growing heavy as her head fell to one side. One more minute wouldn't hurt, as the sound of birds heading home to roost surrounded the cottage. Between the birds and the call to sleep, there was another sound though, a rustling noise that seemed to be coming from the right side of the house on the path that connected it to the main street. Alice was immediately awake, her body still as her ears located the sound again. Yep, someone was moving around the outside of the house to the front door. She stood up and moved to the far window to peer out, keeping her body hidden as one eye scanned the gloom. Struggling to see much as she looked towards the sea, she then realised something was moving only a few feet away. She drew back behind the wall. The noise stopped. After breathing deeply, she peered out again to see a figure dressed in white illuminated by her living room fire through the window. Her heart began to beat strangely as the figure raised a hand in greeting. It was Thomas. You've been listening to The Bells of Mensmere, Part 1. It's now time to tune into Folkways FM. I've been told they're currently on the move. Apparently the staff member who'd been singing in the choir at St David's was involved in some kind of a kerfuffle in the cloisters and was, was actually asked to leave. Um, leave they did. The ship is back on the move again. I've been informed they're currently somewhere near Anglesey as I speak. It's a funny old world. Let's try and pick them up. <laughs> Welcome to the month of March and happy St. David's Day and Shrove Tuesday. March, or Mensis Martius in Latin, is named, of course, after Mars, the Roman god of war, as well as an agricultural guardian. March once marked the beginning of the year in the early Roman calendar, as well as the return to active farming, military engagements, and sailing. Across Europe, we find this month named after Mars, and these islands, Marta in Irish, Immarscht in Scots Gaelic, and Merth in Welsh, Mernt in Manx, and in Cornish it's Mismerth. Anglo-Saxons knew this month as Hrethmonath, which was dedicated to the goddess Hretha, or Rida. It is St David's Day today. This falls on the day the saint died in 589, but has only been celebrated since the 12th century, when St. David was canonised. Folks traditionally remember him by wearing a leek on this day, which although somewhat fell out of fashion, 
does appear to be making a comeback. You'll often hear too, the leek wearing commemorates a great Welsh victory over the Saxons. Welsh soldiers were ordered to wear the vegetables on their helmet, so goes the story, so they would recognise their countrymen during the fighting. The origin is also dramatised in Shakespeare's Henry V, when the Welsh captain remarked that Welsh soldiers fought a battle, quote, in a garden where leeks did grow. Some Welsh regiments today continue to celebrate Wales's National Day by wearing a leek in their cap badges. There's also an old superstition that sleeping with a leek under her pillow on St David's Day would enable a woman to dream of a future lover. Do you remember in Folkway's second episode on Midsummer, there was a segment on prophetic dreams, where there's a tradition of placing various objects under one's pillow to dream of your partner to be. I just thought this was an interesting crossover where this practice is not only seen at Midsummer, but also Halloween too, amongst other festivities. It is also Shrove Tuesday, though it's hard to imagine this now. Shrovetide was once the biggest and wildest festival of early spring. Its origins lay in the early Middle Ages, along with those of the long fast of Lent. People used to flock to the confessional to be shriven, or shriven, great word, you been shriven lately? Shrive meaning to administer the sacrament of confession to absolve. This took place before the great fast of Lent commenced. Though we don't have the equivalent of the Mardi Gras in France, of course, we did once have something of the same kind of festivity, as this old account collected by P.H. Ditchfield records. Some run about the streets attired like monks and some like kings, accompanied with pomp and guard and other stately things. Some like wild beasts do run abroad in skins that divers be, arrayed and eke with loathsome shapes that dreadful are to see. They counterfeit both bears and wolves and lions fierce in sight, and raging bulls some play the cranes with wings and stilts upright. Our modern carnival is a much less riotous affair, and generally resolves itself around eating pancakes. Yep, that's it. There is an ancient tradition, however, where a bell is rung which is called the Pancake Bell. This formerly called the Faithful to the Confessional. For a long time at Culworth, Northamptonshire and Crowell, Lincolnshire, the Pancake Bell was still heard. Do you know of anywhere it's still rung today? I know St Mary's in the Wood, Morley, in its new location at Commercial Street, still rings the bell to signify Lent. But if you know of somewhere, please email the show, folkwayschannel at gmail.com. English children, namely of Southern and Midland counties, had a vast array of incredibly similar rhymes to mark Pancake Day. Here's one from Bolden, Oxfordshire. Pitter-pat, the pan's hot, I become a-shroving. Catch a fish afore the net, that's better than nothing. Eggs, lard and flowers, dear, that makes me come a-shroving here. I've got to point out, it's best not to annoy these gangs of youths, as they might target you if displeased, 
which might be done by throwing stones at your door and singing, skit scat, skit scat, take this and take that. Or by tying a stone to the door handle, which of course this podcast does not endorse. I'm sure I'm not the only one getting trick-or-treat vibes here. Pay up or else. A lot of traditions throughout all the year do have a theme of youngish folks going from door to door, either in costume or singing rhymes, and essentially, all pomp and ritual aside, asking for scraps. Not a bad idea. But where did eating pancakes actually come from, though? So, Lent was kept by a strict abstinence from meat all through the 40 days, and it was customary to use up all the drippings and lard in the making of pancakes. To consume all, it was usual to call in the apprentice boys and others about the house, and they were summoned by a bell which naturally became known as the pancake bell. Abandon your post and get thee to the griddle. So we've got the bell being rung in the house to gather everyone at the table, and we've got it being rung in the church to call you to the confessional. St. Piran's Day on 5th of March is the National Day of Cornwall. March is chock full of saint days, as we've got St. Patrick's Day then on the 17th. Irish families would traditionally attend church in the morning and celebrate in the afternoon. Lenten prohibitions against the consumption of meat were waived and people would dance, drink and feast on the traditional meal of Irish bacon and cabbage. Folkways will be exploring who St. Patrick, St. Perrin and St. David were in future episodes where there is so much to cover. As you may know, in the Wheel of the Year, we have four fire festivals, Imolch, which we looked at last month, Beltane, Lunatha and Samhain. In between these, there are the solar festivals, which are the solstices and the equinoxes. On what falls as the 20th of March this year, it is, of course, the first of these, the spring equinox, also known as Astara. This is the point when, from here, the hours of daylight become greater than those of darkness, and where we can truly feel spring knocking. If we imagine a set of scales, they are perfectly balanced right now, and each day they tip a fraction more in day's favour as night lessens its grip, something which, in the depths of winter, for our ancestors may have felt like it would never happen. As I mentioned, this equinox is also known as Astara, a word coming from the Anglo-Saxon goddess name Istro. In the Northern Hemisphere, the sun rises or dawns in the east, a word also derived from Iosta, spelt E-O-S-T-R-E. And what does that word sound like? This is a time when the land is planted with seed and will soon bring forth, we hope, a bountiful yield. See last month's episode on the Acrebot if you're interested. Each day now, the trees grow heavier with bud and blossom. Think about the sap flowing up those gnarled trunks, waking them from their winter sleep. The next date for our diaries 
is the 27th of March, which is Mothering Sunday. This arose from an ancient ordinance of the church, requiring the priests and people to visit the mother church of the district on Mothering Sunday, and long ago this ecclesiastical custom became generally associated with a pleasant gathering of families and the renewing of the ties of home life. It was customary for children who were absent from home in service to visit their parents on this day. For many, it was the first opportunity to go home in the working year. The young folk took as a present for their parents a small cake known as a simnel cake. I remember my mum making these in the past, which if you look at that tradition is actually the wrong way round. If you woke up in Galway today, the sun rose at 7.23 and set at 6.14. Glasgow sun rose at 8 minutes past 7 and set at 5.51. Guildford, going for all the G's there, sun rose at 6.47, go Guildford, and set at 5.42. We have gained buckets of light this month. As an example, this time last month in Guildford, the sun wasn't rising until 20 to 8. The new moon is Wednesday, March the 2nd, and it will be waxing until the 18th. Here's one for your diaries. On the 12th to the 13th of March, if you look up, the waxing gibbous moon passes below Castor and Pollux. So if you look directly above the moon, you will spy the twins. Venus is also notably bright this month, and you should spy Earth's sister easily, therefore, in the mornings. Names for March's full moon on the 18th include the Plough Moon, Chaste Moon, and Lenten Moon. So that's the heavens, what about the hedgerows? Many favourite foraging plants are first at their best in March, Alexanders have begun to produce the long but not yet fibrous side shoots, a non-native plant that was brought here by the Romans as a winter feed for their horses. Stinging nettles form low blankets of new leaves, sea kale gives us its first taste, and in the middle of March it's time to tap birch trees for their sap. The hedgerows really begin to wake up this month with many birds building nests, butterflies and queen white-tailed bumblebees just out of hibernation may also be spotted. So too will bats who <laughs> have essentially run out of their reserves at this point and you might see them flitting around the hedgerows looking for some grub. In the garden, we've got a piece of advice from the 1683 English housewife, which reads, In March, if the moon be new, so garlic, chervil, marjoram, white poppy, double marigolds, thyme, and violets. The new moon is on Wednesday, so if you were planning on planting any of those, you have the English housewife's full blessing, which I know is very important to you. In terms of general gardening, you can start making direct sowings this month if the weather is mild. Think onions, shallots and early potatoes. For flowers, prune your roses, plant early flowering bulbs 
and something I got from Good Old Gardener's World is to sow native wildflower seeds in trees or modules to produce plants for your own mini meadow. The bees will thank you. As a closing note, for the next three months until June, the sun is reigning supreme and is growing in power every day. You have many, many hours of daylight and warmth stretching ahead of you this year. Yes, even in these northerly isles. Go and make the most of it. Now it's time for the third instalment of The Magic Apple Tree by Susan Hill. You'll find a link to buy a copy in the show notes. The blossom opened slowly, slowly on the apple tree. One day the boughs are grey, though with the swellings of the leaves to come visible if you look closely. The next day, and the next, here and there, a speck of white, and then a sprinkling, as though someone has thrown a handful of confetti up into the air and let it fall, anyhow, over the branches. The weather is grey, it is cold still. The blossom looks like snow against the sky. And then, one morning, there is snow, five or six inches of it after a terrible stormy night. And rising from it, set against the snow-filled sky, the little tree is puffed out with its blossom, a crazy sight like some surreal painting. And all around us, in every other garden, there is the white apple and the pink cherry blossom, thick as cream in a winter landscape. And another day, just before the blossom withers and shrinks back into the first opening leaves, there is the softest of spring mornings. At last, it is touched by the early sun, and the apple tree looks as it should look if the world went aright in springtime.